I'm the Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program, and I'm delighted to um, welcome you here to our fourth conversation in our series, Reinventing Low-Wage Work, Ideas That Can Work for Employers, Employees, and the Economy. Um, this is our fourth conversation in this series, and um, it has been a terrific conversation, and we have another great group of folks to talk with you today. Um, and just to say a couple of comments about why we do this and, and things that I've been learning. You know, in this series, we've so far we've talked about retail jobs, we've talked about restaurant jobs, we've talked about um, home health jobs and low-wage health care jobs. Um, and one of the things I've learned is that um, classifying these jobs as low-wage and focusing on the wage does not capture the degree of economic fragility and uncertainty facing workers in these kinds of occupations, because it's not just about wage, it's about the lack of access to benefits, about unpredictability of earnings, it's about a whole variety of um, issues that shape the quality of the job and the ability of people to support themselves and their families through their work. Um, so I've really been uh, learning a lot about the challenges, but also I've really been inspired by the organizations we've had come talk with us, by um, organizations that are doing a tremendous amount to support workers to gain skills and to advocate for their, um, for their success in the workplace, and by business leaders who are doing things in a different way, who are investing in their workforce, and who are running successful businesses and, and sort of modeling, uh, modeling that. So it's, it's been a terrific conversation, and I'm sure we're going to have another um, terrific conversation today. Today's topic is um, residential construction. We called it the Housing Markets Foundation, a discussion of, on the uh, workforce and residential construction. And what a great time to talk about building houses. Housing starts are up, best in four years. So we planned that, of course. Um, uh, so it was good to see that in the news the other day. The other thing I saw in the news the other day uh, maybe was less um, well viewed was uh, something from the Department of Labor that they'd settled a suit with a, a residential landscaping company to pay back wages for not having paid their workers and misclassified. And so, so I do think as we are hoping that the housing sector ticks up and does create more jobs, that it's an excellent time to be talking about what is the quality of these jobs and are these the jobs that are really the kinds of jobs that we're hoping to, to stimulate and to grow and that are going to um, support uh, quality businesses and build quality homes and, and help people support their families and build the kind of economy and, and society that we want. Um, We've been having a terrific conversation over lunch with my uh, terrific panelists here, so I want to introduce them to you now and let them um, carry on this conversation with you all. Uh, so let's see. Now, they don't sit in the order that they are on <laughs> here. So, uh, so right next to me here is Nick Theodore, Associate Professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Policy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, next to him is Mike Holland, Division President, Merrick Brothers Systems Incorporated. Next to him is Christine Owens, thank you, uh, Executive Director of the National Employment Law Project. And uh, sitting next to her is Emily Tim, a Policy Analyst from the Workers' Defense Project in Austin, Texas. Um, and we have uh, bios for all of them in your material, so I didn't want to read them. You can see how accomplished they are on your own. But right now, I want to turn it over to Yuki Noguchi, correspondent from the National Dex, uh, uh, National Public Radio, to lead us in this conversation. And thank you all so much for being here today. Thank you, Maureen. And um, it is a really interesting time to be talking about housing. Um, of course, it was the sector that uh, brought us into the great 
recession, and it is, at this point, most economists would agree on the rebound. Um, there's evidence of this uh, in home prices increasing, um, and you know, obviously borrowing costs are very low. Um, inventory is down even in some of the hardest hit markets. Um, you know, and I think um, at the same time you're looking at a labor market that uh, is showing, showing a little bit of signs of recovery. Um, so, I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the industry and how it works, and, um, and then we're going to address a couple of uh, major issues, including job security, training, which Maureen mentioned, which I think is a really interesting issue, and then um, you know, some of the dynamics from the industry's perspective, as well as people who work with workers, and then people who think about policy as well. So um, on the first point, I, mean, I was going to start with Nick. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about who the workers are, what is their demographics, and what, how is the industry structured? Well, as many of you probably know, when we talk about the construction sector, we often break it up into three segments. At, at the top end, or one end, you've got your industrial and infrastructure projects. Uh, many of these are unionized contractors uh, working on, on large-scale, multi-year projects. Now we've got the commercial sector, or a commercial segment as well. Much of this in many parts of the country also unionized and sometimes very large projects. And then we've got the residential segment. And it probably makes sense for this discussion to divide the residential segment into, into two pieces. One where you have the major home builders that have great access to capital, access to, to land, uh, considerable economies of scale, and very large workforces producing houses all over the country, uh, regional players, local players, and some national players. And then you've got all these specialty trades uh, that can be everything from the, the company that hangs the doors and windows to drywalling, roofing, flooring, concrete laying, and so on. A lot of small operators uh, with very flexible crews uh, that are, are at the, the far ends of supply chains um, being brought into projects in, on a short-term basis and trying to string together a series of jobs over time. And so really we've got an industry that, that's quite fragmented. It has its segments. It's quite diverse. Um, and has many, many workplaces that change over, over and over. And this is going to raise issues you know, whenever you look at policy and, and, and practice. A lot of your work is focused on low-wage work. What yeah. percent of the workforce in housing would you say constitutes low or low-wage workers? You know, it's a, it's a tricky question because I think that really differs from different parts of the country and different times of the year. And uh, this is an industry here that follows the business cycle quite closely. And so we see a lot of fluctuation. It really is, is quite fluid. But uh, within the, the residential segment and those specialty contractors, you know, a lot of it is a little bit like the Wild West. Uh, you have very little regulation and oversight. It's a very fluid workforce where people are coming and going and where conditions really run the gamut from everything from you know, completely legitimate high-end contractors that do the right things and play by the rules to unlicensed contractors at the other end that are breaking all the laws, that are exposing workers to innumerable health and safety violations, and that are routinely engaging in wage theft. It, it really is a, a diverse industry without a lot of uh, industry leadership in many ways and very little government oversight. I think, uh, Mike, maybe you could talk a little bit about the market dynamics that you see now, uh, some of the workforce issues that you've been dealing with, uh, and sort of like how things work in the company that you work for. Maybe you should start off by describing what kind of work that you guys do. Well, we do a combination of residential and commercial work, uh, probably two-thirds commercial and the rest residential. Um, night and day difference in the, in the workforces. Uh, it's, a, it's a sad day when you describe a construction craft worker as a, a low-wage job. Uh, but that's where we are. 
It used to be a middle class job when, when, uh, when I got out of college. A, a journeyman carpenter made more money than his counterpart as a construction graduate. Now that's completely flip-flopped a, a construction graduate in the mid-50s. That's a 25-year, 30-year veteran in the construction business. So something's, something's awry there. Um, I, I think there's, there's uh, very little training, very little structure. Uh, basically, the wages are driven completely by the economic uh, demand, supply and demand. Uh, that's not good for workers. Uh, they, they basically have had flat wages, low skill levels in, in construction. Um, in the commercial side, uh, we're starting to see the same thing happen. Uh, very little training uh, available for workers, uh, very little demanded. Uh, contractors want skilled workers, but have done very little to actually uh, make that a reality by working with organizations like uh, that are represented here today. I find it interesting that you mentioned that, um, that even for, uh, for uh, an industry where workers have been laid off by the droves that you actually, one of your biggest problems right now is finding workers you know, with the skills that you need. What, is the, what are some of the barriers to getting those skilled workers or even training those workers? Well, there's some demographics at, at play here. Um, our, our immigration policy has, has uh, tightened up to some degree, so we've uh, had, had less uh, availability to the immigrant worker. Um, uh, the economy has slowed down, so some have left. Uh, some have left the construction field. It's a cyclical business anyway, so people, they, they come and go. They might change jobs. Some have been laid off and been that way a long time, and they're not coming back. Um, so what happens is the, the, the buyers of construction services say this is a soft market, so they're looking for the best deal. Well, that further suppresses wages, and then people don't have the discretionary money that they should be looking as an investment. So they're not, they're not paying for those jobs. So um, recently on a, on a blog site that I, I think is the, the, the preeminent example of discussion of workforce at constructioncitizen.com, the executive from the Greater Houston Home Builders Association in Houston was uh, lamenting the fact that they're, they're just now starting to uptick just in the last 60 days and they're already seeing shortages of workers, uh, no drywallers to drywall the house, no framers, that sort of thing. And people are, are astonished. But this has been going on for three decades. Every time we have another up uptick after a slowdown, it gets a little bit worse, and we, and, we, and we never quite recovered to the same level. We'll get to the skills training issue and what the industry is doing about it a little later. Maybe, Emily, you could talk a little bit about what's going on in um, your home state of Texas and sort of the programs that you're seeing, things that you're hearing about. Sure, I can do that. Um, our organization um, works with low-wage workers um, with problems like wage theft or when they've been injured on the job. Um, and we work primarily with workers in the construction industry because more complaints come to us from the construction industry than any other sector. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Texas, but I don't want everyone to think, oh, well, that's what happens in Texas, it's a special case. Texas is incredibly important in the national construction scene right now. 10% um, of all home building, um, it, it, excuse me, um, Texas is responsible for 10% of the um, home building output right now um, alone. And while many other places construction has come to a halt or slowed and is just now picking back up, Texas has been continuing to have a both commercial and um, recovering uh, residential market as well. Um, and I think that it's important because what happens in Texas um, affects the rest of the country and that those are some of the, the traits that will be um, carried out and some of the trends that we're seeing in Texas now could be something that's happening um, down the road for the rest of the country. Um, our organization um, has worked with the University of Texas at Austin to conduct research on the industry and we found that um, one in every five workers um, in Austin has experienced wage theft um, and, excuse me, in Texas and that um, Texas is the most deadly state to work in the construction industry, and that 40% of the construction workforce is being misclassified as independent contractors, um, which means that workers are being stripped of their basic rights and protections. Um, now, Mike mentioned that um, 
people think of construction jobs or have traditionally thought of construction jobs as good middle class jobs or blue collar jobs that um, lead to a career path and that's just simply not the case. That's not what we're seeing. We're seeing incredible um, people going from week to week not even knowing if they're going to be paid, um, high injury and illness rates in the construction industry. These aren't careers. These aren't jobs that are leading to economic stability for working families in Texas. Um, and we think that that's why it's critically important that we start to think about how do we move workers. These jobs aren't going anywhere. Texas construction jobs, U.S. construction jobs aren't going to be shipped overseas. If we want to talk about rebuilding, reinventing low-wage work, we need to be turning these jobs into good career paths with training and that lead people to economic su sustainability for their families. And that's a perfect entry for Christine. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the policy issues that might be affecting uh, workers or, you know, I mean, other, other issues you might be working on? So, sure, so Emily alluded to, to them and Mike did as well. I think the issue of misclassification is a huge issue. And, and when we were talking over lunch, um, you know, we think about residential construction, particularly single home construction, as having an incredibly high incidence of misclassification. But Mike is saying it's actually become a problem industry-wide. It's a special problem in red residential because there are so few standards. The standards and regulations are so limited. And it's so hard for, as, as Nick says, this is a workforce that turns over regularly. It's really hard to inspect and enforce. There's also a very high rate of immigrant workers, many of whom are undocumented um, and who are especially vulnerable to uh, the fear of, ex um, of being sent back to their home countries. And so workers are afraid to complain about the conditions. So mis misclassification is a huge issue. It's a huge issue for workers. It's a huge issue for companies that don't misclassify because it creates such a competitive disadvantage if they are playing by the rules, paying fair wages, et cetera. It's a huge and by issue. misclassification, maybe you could define a little bit about what that means. It means uh, treating, a, calling a worker an independent contractor as opposed to an employee, which then means the employer doesn't have to pay the minimum wage, doesn't have to uh, pay overtime, doesn't have to provide benefits if benefits are typically provided, doesn't have to provide any of the full range of worker protections under federal and state law. Uh, so it's a huge issue. We know it's, it's, um, it's a growing problem across all industries. It's a greater problem in construction than in other industries and a greater problem in residential than in uh, commercial and industrial construction. So that's a policy response we need to deal with. The issue and is anything being done about that currently or is there any discussion about well, that? Well, there's discussion. There's been ongoing discussion on the Hill about both addressing the issues under the tax laws and under the labor laws. Um, and at one point, President Obama actually, or the Labor Department, had announced an initiative around misclassification. There's a lot more going on in the states. And a, a large number of states have actually undertaken studies. Um, some have passed legislation. There's a lot of documentation. We do an annual update about what's going on in the states around misclassification. Uh, there's a lot of documentation about the incidence of misclassification and the cost um, to workers, but I, the one thing I also wanted to mention is there's a huge cost to the public because employers that are misclassifying their employees as independent contractors are not making unemployment insurance um, uh, contributions, are not making workers' comp, comp um, contributions, and the workers themselves are often paid in cash or their wages are underreported, so there's no income tax revenue coming in. So it is a huge cost. 
uh, to all of us, and especially at a time when we're both concerned about deficits and concerned about the social safety net for unemployed and injured workers, this is a huge issue that we need to address. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the undocumented workers and the uh, non-payment issues and sort of how that, what are the consequences of that? And, um, you know, maybe you could talk, put it in historical context for us. Sure. Well, maybe what I could do is take us back to 2004, which was pretty close to the height of the boom in the construction industry. At that time, with a couple of colleagues from New York and Los Angeles, we conducted a survey of day laborers in 20 states in the District of Columbia. And there, we, we found a number of interesting things. First, uh, when you look at the day labor workforce, and I'm talking work about workers now who stand in public spaces uh, looking for work, most often in the construction industry and the landscaping industry, uh, about 75% were undocumented immigrants. And why this is important is that it becomes very difficult for many of those workers to exercise their rights in the workplace. So here we are in 2004, right near the height of the boom, uh, when, there, when construction work is plentiful and co contractors, for the most part, have the ability to pay. But what we found was that 49% of day laborers, um, just in a two-month period, had at least one instance of wage theft. Where they, where they worked all day and the employer uh, refused to pay them at the end of the day. And for many of these workers, it's not just one day, but they get strung along day after day, sometimes a week or more at a time, figuring that at any moment if they quit that job, they've lost a week's worth of pay. And so even at the height of the boom, even at the time when construction contractors were incredibly busy, there was a group of workers uh, in the industry that were systematically being denied their wages. And not just that they were being denied their wages, but exposed to a range of health and safety um, hazards at the workplace and so on. So you've got an industry here that um, has always had a low road. And I think the important point is that that low road cuts a wide path through the residential construction industry. I'll add just one more thing. I was in Seattle last week completing a survey of, of day laborers in that city where the industry, again, is doing pretty well. Wages weren't as bad as I, th I thought they would be. And, and those day labor hiring sites really are a repository for workers from all over the world. So in this little survey I did, interviewed workers from Morocco, from Kenya, from Ethiopia, um, from Israel, uh, as well as many workers from the United States. In addition to the typical, what we regard as a typical day labor work, workforce of Mexican and Central American immigrants. So it really is an industry that is made up of a lot of people from a lot of different places, which I think leads to some of the complexity of training, it leads to some of the complexity of enforcement, but also opens up a door for employers to abuse those workers um, and sometimes quite systematically. I mean, has the role of unions changed in this industry recently? I don't know who would take this question, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of the unions, the diminishing role of the unions, or what percent of people are even in unions anymore? Right. Um, well, you know, the, the share of the workforce, particularly in the private sector, in unions overall has been declining uh, for some time. And, and that's certainly true of construction. Um, at, at During the boom, the share of, um, or at the height of the boom, the share of uh, workers in residential construction who were unionized was about 7%, which is lower than construction representation generally, um, and at that time was actually lower than private sector representation generally. Today, the share of workers in residential construction who are in unions is less than 3%. And this is not surprising considering how many construction jobs we lost and half of those jobs were in residential construction. So it's not surprising that the share would decline so significantly. Uh, it is, as Nick says, it is, um, 
it is a hard sector to organize because of the nature of the work and the nature of the workforce. Uh, the absence of real regulations and standards actually makes it more difficult for unions to organize this sector. There are some efforts underway and, and the laborers, um, the uh, building trades unions generally have a few projects going on around the country, uh, particularly around weatherization and um, energy efficiency retrofits and the like. Uh, but those projects to be successful really require a partnership between the unions, the contractors, the local governments, the housing authorities if they're in place, whoever is administering economic development funding. So we, you know, the last several years we've been in the perfect storm of the worst conditions imaginable to try to uh, unionize this sector and give, a, give unions a role in giving workers in the sector a real voice in job security. Right. Mike, maybe you could talk a little bit about any industry initiatives to sort of either change the structure or address some of the, you know, safety concerns or even non-payment concerns because, you know, you probably rely a lot on subcontractors and subcontractors and independent contractors. So can you talk well, a little bit? Well, um, it's, it's interesting when Chris talks about uh, partnerships. Um, what happened to the partnership between an employer, the, the company, the construction company, and its craft workers? Um, without having to be represented by a union or anybody else. And I think that, that at, at Merrick, we're guided by our values, and that is that these are employees of our company, not any different than professional jobs, not any different than the president of the company. And that while the economic climate drives certain business decisions, it doesn't change the way we view our workforce. And I think that, that, that under what pressure... What does that mean, though? In, in practice, does it in, mean in, that In practice, it means, it means wage growth, it means evaluation on performance, it means a guaranteed career path. Uh, and, and consistent training, and certainly safety training, first of all, but craft training as well. And, and we've partnered with, with uh, local organizations in Houston uh, to develop something. There's uh, uh, cards at the, at the table. It's called C3, the Construction Career Collaborative. And, and it came as a, as a result of the recognition that we had not uh, developed a sustainable workforce. In fact, we had unsustainable business practices in the commercial industry. Absolutely goes in the residential industry. And we have developed uh, philosophical standards of training, pay, benefits in, in, in layers so that, and we're gone to owners to try to ask owners who have actually owner groups like Kurt and COA, the Construction Users Roundtable and the Construction Owners Association have actually written white papers to contractors highlighting the demographic shift and the, sh and the shortage, the looming shortage of workers we are, we're going to have. We played those back to them. They were 100 percent in favor of workforce programs. Not one brought up the issue of cost, and we know it's there. Because the life cycle cost of a building, that labor cost is minuscule uh, compared to the quality issues. And so we begin promoting those standards and actually now have in Houston five beta projects which are trying to incorporate these training standards where wages, hourly pay, uh, OSHA 10 hour and 30 hour training, and then hopefully we'll begin to start with that once we overcome misclassification. Uh, and then move on to developing a network of training with, with uh, organizations like uh, English. And so are you, are you actually seeing then wage growth? Are you seeing better security? Are you seeing, you know, uh, people advance and make careers out of, as not, a result? Not of that at this program? point. I think all, 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 the, all the constituents here want to see benchmarks. Benchmarking for us would be an hourly workforce, a W-2 earning hourly workforce. There will be no wage growth. There will be no training that will, that will grow out of this without that. So misclassification reform from a policy point of view, businesses adopting and embracing these standards, then we got a chance to build something. But the benchmarking has to start at the lowest point, and we have to recognize where we are, and it's a very low place. Emily, did you want to add something to that? Um, no, I, um, I guess I just wanted to share um, that um, 
that initiatives like this to work. Um, we've, we have an example I'd like to share from Austin where we've um, recently, in order to address these issues that so much of the workforce has not received formal training, um, that wages are incredibly low, we've been partnering with local um, home building agencies, housing advocates, to um, actually incorporate certain standards into their, um, into their construction projects. They're major builders in Austin, and um, we've worked with them to ensure um, a livable wage, to, um, to, to root out misclassification on their work sites, um, and to make sure that every worker on the site has received safety trainings, and to move workers into training programs that then lead to a career path. And um, with these organizations that are doing construction in the housing sector, they see this as part of their mission as well. This is, they don't want to be creating more poverty jobs um, and keeping working families in poverty conditions um, through their, their construction projects. And so that, that's been a real effort. And, and we've seen real increases in wages. We've seen people um, make more money than they've ever made before working in the construction industry and have access to training opportunities that they didn't previously have opportunity to. So I think that there's a real opportunity for those partnerships um, to work with um, the, the leaders within the construction industry and to make sure that those um, conditions are put in place and that everyone on the work site from the owner down to the uh, worker level are, are engaged in that process and held to those standards. I think what happens frequently, and, and Nick mentioned this a little bit in the construction industry, is that you have an owner who then passes on all of the responsibility of actually doing the job to a general contractor who passes on to a sub, and by the time you get down to the worker, Nobody at the top level is really sure what's going on on the work site, how that worker's being treated, how they're being, whether, they're, whether they've ever picked up a hammer before they walked out on that work site. And um, that's where we see terrible accidents happening. That's where we see uh, why a worker dies in Texas every two and a half days. Um, we see these problems that can absolutely be addressed by partnering with um, groups from the top down and getting everyone in the construction industry to take responsibility and engage in that process. Sure. To that, um, I think the the sort of the most wonderful example of, of the kind of uh, arrangement that Emily is talking about happened in LA uh, when there was a community redevelopment agency that Cecilia Estelano led, and Lane, um, which is a economic development uh, progressive worker centered economic development group out there, was quite involved in all of the community redevelopment process. In fact, the then executive director sat on the agency. And every and, and what they did was leverage any public funding that exceeded a million dollars for construction of a residential property uh, into a community benefits agreement that required a certain amount of hiring from within the community, required career plans and development, pre-apprenticeship, apprenticeship, required certain other benefits that might uh, be unique to the community, but they actually were able to move tens of thousands of people into good construction jobs. But again, it was this partnership between uh, the public authorities, the trades, and the um, contractors. And I, I do think that the public partnership, the public monies that can be leveraged to improve job quality in this sector, it's just absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a good pivot point to talk about training, which I think is one of the more interesting issues because that seems to be underlying a lot of the solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so, Mike, can you talk a little bit about um, the skill ga skills gap that you uh, had talked to us about before, and you know, maybe just to describe what that looks like and how that manifests, and what the industry is trying to do about that? Uh, well, I think this applies to maybe not to industrial, but certainly to commercial and residential. Um, other than those who were at one time part of a union, 
and perhaps went through an apprenticeship program with, with required training. Uh, the union model of the 2,000 you know, hour and a year uh, well, with job, on-the-job training plus weekly training. Uh, th that's been replaced with nothing uh, other than the occasional uh, certifications that are out there, licensed trades in some cases. If you do mechanical work, air conditioning, electrical, you'll have some state local requirements there. But typically there's been no ongoing training. So you have the, the famous OJT, which means I don't really do it, uh, or they have to learn on their own. Uh, and, and so the OJT gaps are meaning on the job training. On the job training. Mm -hmm. And, and um, it's ironic we have a, a, an element of ours that we call OJT Helper, which is a structured program where they have a mentor for an entire year and they have to pass certain milestones. But most people say, yeah, our training is OJT, which means it doesn't exist. And, that, and that's really how you come up with skill gaps. You have people who enter the workforce with, with less and less advanced skills. Let's face it, we have an immigrant workforce. It's harder to be safe on the job if you don't speak the same language. It's harder to give instructions either way. So there's, there's tremendous burdens placed on workers and supervisors to actually get things done. And the instruction that needs to be there, even on the job site or in the classroom, is more difficult to deliver than it ever has been before. So the skill gap is, is, is ever widening. Uh, I think the other thing is with flat wages for 30 plus years now, the, the, the kind of people that, that we are attracting into what are now these low paying jobs and, and uh, are going to continue that way. And so you have folks who come over here who are perhaps immigrants who have very little education in their own countries, let alone ours. So they have math skills, they have language problems. Some of them, we've tried to get people into adult basic education so they could learn at a level that would allow them to be that way. We, some of our problems are as far back as schools. Uh, in Texas, there's a huge uproar over this college-only track. Uh, our industry has to connect with educators so that what they do feeds young men and women into the construction business as a, as a potential career path. It doesn't exist. You can't just sporadically do this or demand it or mandate it. I've seen project agreements and wage things that are, that are enforced on people and they'll do it as long as the money's there and they're told to do it. And that job's over and those guys just wander off into the workforce and there's no continuous training. So we have to make this sustainable early on, tied to our educational partners, community colleges, high schools. Value these careers and make it a reality. It's not a reality. It's, it's that's not all we are right now. It's sort of interesting to me that you said uh, that, first of all, there's a lot of skilled workers who are aging out of the workforce, and, so, and then young people aren't coming drawn into this profession, perhaps because of the wages being flat. Um, also, um, you, you had mentioned that industrial, since we're talking about residential here, that industrial usually gets the cream of the crop, and then you know commercial gets the next layer, and then residential, sort of everybody else. Is there a way, what are you guys doing to address that? I mean, you know, in other sectors, uh, you know, I know they're doing sectoral uh, training programs so that, you know, the industry partners with the public um, monies and then, you know, maybe a nonprofit like Emily's and then you sort of train all together a, a workforce and that seems to address the issue without having to put the onus on the employer who may or may not be able to keep that, you know, retain that employee that they then train. Is there some sort of sectoral training program that you, you guys are part of? Or? Uh, uh, we work, we partner with uh, Sarah Jobs for Progress. Um, um, we try to utilize their graduates. We partner with community colleges. Community colleges are one of the biggest ways to do that. Uh, they're also one of the biggest obstacles. They have the role of constructor owners. They have bond programs in our area, three, four hundred million dollar bond programs. They build 20,000 foot training center, but don't mandate that the skills of the people that are on their jobs meet those that they have, yet they wonder why employers don't send them to their classes. We haven't created demand yet. And, and I believe 
quickly training solutions would form if there was demand. But you can't create training and then hope to push people into it. You got to value the skills, you got to push the wages because you believe that, that value will be there and then you can push, employers will push their workers into these training programs. Right, I thought you were saying there was demand though, that there, there is demand for well, these skills. The, the, but the, the, the payment is, is not matching. Companies want good workers, but in terms of pay and benefits and this employee thing, there's a lot of good contractors out there. I mean, it sounds like Emily and I are saying that all contractors don't do this right. There are shining examples of people that do it right, but they're at a tremendous competitive disadvantage to continue to sustain this, especially in a downtime like this. And we need to level that playing field with policy, for example, like misclassification so that the good guys can get it right and partner. So there's a need for good workers, but the recognition of who to connect with, Workers' Defense, SARE, Community Colleges, I mean, this room is full of people with workforce programs, but the employers are not their partners. That's uh -huh. what we have to get together. Uh-huh. Okay. Go ahead. And I just wanted to add um, to that discussion um, that uh, we've sort of alluded to it, but the fact that there, so there are some existing workforce programs, there's some community co college programs. There's a real problem that the reality is that, the, that in some cases in Texas, for example, 70% of the workforce is foreign born. Um, and that we really need to create training opportunities for the current workforce. We need to make sure that, and, and this, this does involve a partnership. This involves bringing in um, building trades. This involves um, building these training opportunities that are really going to um, en enable um, workers to have access to training programs in their first language that are going to make them safe on the job and move them into uh, a career path to actually be able to, um, to move into those jobs to meet that need of the construction industry. Um, so I think that that's a, a critically important piece of that um, to, to recognize that we, we need to move new people into the industry, but we also need to recognize where the industry is right now and to really be training our current workforce. Nick, did you want to add any, like talk about obstacles to training? Sure. Or? I mean, you, you can see the, the problem. You've got a highly cyclical industry that has a lot of fluidity and a lot of instability. So now put yourself in the, in the mind of an employer. Are you going to train me uh, and invest those resources in that time and I'm gonna go jump over and join Mike's shop. So you're saying, all right, well, I've got a problem here. And I think the industry as a whole has a collective action problem that there, that there are powerful disincentives for the individual contractor to engage in, in training, especially in a world that's filled with independent contractors and workers free floating around. And I think you know, part of the answer is what, what Emily's talking about, some partnerships between the building trades, between industry and community organizations. But I think here too, you can see how crucial labor unions have been in the absence of those formalized training programs, high quality training programs, we wind up with a very fragmented system. And, and Michael tell you, the industry has a looming problem. It's coming uh, because of it. I think just, the, I heard Mike to be saying when you were talking about demand, that because there aren't standards that contractors have to meet, there's no incentive for them to train their, leave the cost out of it. But that, and we see this in the whole green jobs economy. You know, if there were more, uh, requirements for retrofitting and energy effic efficiency retrofitting, then there would be more work in that area, more training for that. If the standards were higher and were enforced, then workers would have to be trained. And we see this in some other sectors. In hotel, we've seen it. In daycare, we've seen it. That one way to try to drive the wages up is to create higher standards, which then creates you know, a pull in terms of educating workers and training workers and it helps make these better jobs, keep the wages growing. But you really can't, and this is another policy piece of it, there have to be standards by which the work is assessed. 
And and are there? I mean, are there industry certifications that people get? I mean, are there more sort of standards? There, there are. There's an organization, uh, probably the, the most prominent, educating uh, in uh, construction, the National Center for Construction Education Research. Um, but for example, states struggle to say, is that part of our curriculum? They're on this four by four program. They don't have time in their curriculum to put this in there. So when you try to go recruit to high school, you're no the vocational counselor say we don't we don't want you talking to these kids. We want them to go to to go to college. And, and one thing I'd like to say, business has no problem at the professional white collar level understanding this value proposition you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They don't need standards to tell them that they need to develop people and, and meet those standards. They're competing for that talent nationally, internationally. What's, why, why can't construction do that? We, the construction manages pay, not performance. If people knew our, I, there's not a construction firm out there that doesn't know when two people walk in the door and one is better, more experienced, and a good worker, they'll pay more. But they won't pay for what they don't think they'll get. And so far, they've been completely unable to develop the kind of worker they want to pay more money to. In but fact, I, the inefficiencies have already, the cost is built into the system. Same wages, half the production, cost goes up. We're already paying the price. If we would reinvest that in the workforce, and, and uh, I just think business honestly has to take it on the chin here, but I'm not sure that, that policies are going to push them into that. And, and you know, they, they, they all make different decisions when they get into a tough place. And right now they're making bad decisions. And, and, the, and the demand that we're going to see coming up when, when housing comes back and commercial comes back and there's not enough workers, wages will go up. But if productivity doesn't go up, all we've done is another spike in escalation. How do you change that dynamic, if you could? And then I mean, I mean, yeah, like you're saying the industry needs to take it on the chin, but how? Like, I mean, we, what, well, what, what we do is we have a specific, we recruit into a workforce development program. We have specific criteria. They have to have a college degree, excuse me, a high school degree, diploma, or a GED to get a job, transportation. They come in, they have to commit to, to stay with us for a length of time. We have wage standards so that at each point, each quarter point in the year, if they're meeting our attendance and safety and performance needs, then they'll move automatically to the next wage. When they complete that after roughly a year, they move on to the next level. And if they can't make those standards, then we move them on. But there are performance standards. And we found great reception to that, a great reception to that. And I think that if our industry did more of that, we need to reinforce that. That's where the, the C3, the, the, the sort of conversations that Emily is having uh, in Austin, we're hearing ripples of that in Houston from developers who are coming to us going, whoa, what are we gonna do? And they're actually feeling you know, the pressure and yet they just don't know what to do. And honestly, the contracting community has not, not stepped up. We, we just haven't collectively, a few have, but, but not enough to sustain any real momentum. I think this is a place for things like responsible contracting policies make a difference that if a contractor who invests in its workers actually gets a preference in the bidding process, then it's an incentive for the contractor to invest in its workers. So that is a place where uh, an effective public policy intervention uh, that doesn't really add costs for the government can actually make a difference in what, how the contractors um, treat their workers. And, and are you seeing that? There are, I don't know so much in construction. We've seen it in other arenas, um, responsible contracting policies, and we have seen uh, in New York State, for example, payment of higher rates to, um, home, to home care agencies which have higher skilled workforces or North Carolina has a whole program related to child care workers and credentialing of child care workers uh, which also then leads to higher wages. So we see pockets of it. Uh, I don't think we have a lot of it in residential construction. It would certainly be a good thing to, to think about. Okay. Um, I think we've talked a bit about 
those standards. And I think that Texas is sort of a, um, in a way, a case study um, of if those standards aren't there, that the industry, unfortunately, as, as Mike has said, hasn't chosen to go above and beyond or to meet those standards. An example in Texas, Texas does not require workers' compensation. Any employer can choose to opt out, even in a dangerous industry like construction. Um, which means that the majority, over 50% of construction workers that we've surveyed, do not have a workers' comp are not covered by a workers' compensation policy, and this is both residential and commercial t together. Um, and so that's a very good example where you have workers who are uh, there's no regulation, there's no standard in place, and that's not it's not become the industry standard, unfortunately. Um, and so that's critically important, and that, that creates a huge incentive, and I know it's a challenge also for the businesses who, um, companies um, who do provide workers' compensation are then competing against companies who don't have that overhead cost. And how do you continue to win in a competitive bidding scenario if you're not having to pay those basic overhead? There's huge disincentives right now to, to basically stop providing those very basic rudimentary protections for your workforce. Um, and that's something that I think that, that does need to be addressed at a policy level. Um, and it's critically important to, to do so to create that minimum level of standards. Um, I think workers' compensation is one of those questions. And, and then there, misclassification is one of those standards as well, where some um, exterior um, standards could actually help move the industry to those practices to make it so that companies that actually follow the rules and companies that actually do take care of their workers have a competitive advantage, as they should. Mike, I mean, you said that, you know, you didn't think that there were really policy solutions to address this particular issue. I mean, do you, are, are there other policies that you think would help this, or? Well, I, I want to clarify that, and, and Emily makes a great point. Uh, we never understood why Texas was one of the, what, one or two states in the country that didn't um, uh, make workers' comp mandatory. In the commercial industry, every owner who issues a specification requires workers' comp. So in theory, it, at least from a commercial point of view, it ought to be there. Now, misclassification allows folks to opt out of that. Uh, but so I, I, don't, I think that we have, to have a, we have to have a partnership. And I guess my point is that ultimately, business has to get it. They have to value their workers, and they have to see that value. Because even if we, we score, and I, with our construction career collaborative, um, we've actually had school districts tell us uh, we can't really discriminate against other people, but we could use a scoring system to do that. And I think that that would potentially develop some value for people. But it has to be a, a legislation or, or policy that, that creates the need, or, or at least incentivizes the need for people to do it on an ongoing basis. We've done jobs that are, for example, prevailing wage jobs, and uh, maybe a non-union contractor gets the job, so he has no prevailing wage structure, but he has to pay a certain wage. Maybe it's the same as his, or very close, uh, but in order to use people that are below that wage, they have to have an apprenticeship program. So if they're not a union contractor, they can develop one through the ABC, and they do for that job. And then when that job's over two years later, then you've got these workers who might have been trained pretty well, and then they enter the workforce. Well, what do you, what do, you do then? And, and honestly, what I've seen is they just wither away so people don't they're not sustainable, they're not ongoing, and, and, and they need to be. That's where something like a C3 that's collaborative, if owners mandate it, then you have to get the, the safety training. At some point, you can't just push wages. People have to see that there's value there. At the end of the day, the only people that should be able to work on certain kinds of jobs are the kinds that meet minimum standards. Then they compete on a fair level, and the government or a private owner buys best value. But if you're trying to evaluate bids based on non-compliance and compliance, it's, it's, it's pointless to try to put a value system on that. It's like having a scoring system that says, you, I provide a bond, you don't. Well, I, I get five points, you don't get any. If you don't provide a bond, you can't play. I mean, we've got to get to the point that we have zero tolerance for people who are cheating the system. 
and, and that's the, you, know, you call them bandits, call them what you want, they have to go away because it's impossible for good habits to flourish in the face of us allowing these cheaters to continue to play ball. And so maybe, Christine, uh, we could end, up, end our discussion on a policy note and then open it up to questions. Um, do you see this being a federal policy issue? I mean, are there some federal policies that need to be in place? Are there, or is it more of a localized issue? Well, I think the federal policies should be the floor, and then lo localities can adjust upward based on their needs and, and priorities. I think independent contractor misclassification is definitely a federal issue, but also a state, a state issue. Um, wage theft, uh, you know, we know that across the low-wage labor market, wage theft is rampant, a lot of um, overtime violations in construction. Enforcement is a federal issue, but it can be supplemented at the state level. Uh, safety and health issues, as Emily talks about, really high rates of, of um, injuries in construction and even higher in residential construction. That's a federal issue, but the states have a role to play as well. So I, th I think it's a partnership. I think the feds are the floor, and then at the state level, go above what the feds have done. One last question. Do you think that with the, if the housing economy continues on this trajectory upward, that uh, there will be the incentive for the federal government to take some of these issues up? Or do you think that that's? Uh... I would hope so. <laughs> I think that has a lot more to do with ideology and partisanship, unfortunately. But um, you know, I, it is, I think Mike's point about business getting it and getting that investing in good work it, and creating good workers is good for business is a point that we could make across the whole economy and particularly across the low-wage economy. Um, and so I, I think, you know, Mike's a great example of a company, of a, a business person who does that. I support the idea of incentives to encourage employers to do it, uh, but in the absence of voluntary steps, then I think we just have to have tougher enforcement, higher standards and tougher enforcement. Nick, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're in an era of fiscal stress, and so enforcement is not going to be what we all wish it would be. So I think that means that there's an imperative for, um, for the federal, but also state governments to be a lot more strategic in how they're doing their enforcement. We've got a whole range of, of workers' rights organizations, like the one that Emily works for. Why don't we see State Department lever, uh, in partnership with those organizations? They reach deep into these labor markets. They know where the problems are. They have ideas for solutions, both pro programmatically, in terms of training, and in terms of policy. We need to see a lot more uh, stronger partnerships to really get to the root of these problems. Uh, otherwise, the conditions we've been lamenting here today are just going to continue. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to add to Christine's list of sort of the policy issues to think about, um, something that we've talked a lot about today, the whole workforce development issue. I think there, there are examples of good training programs out there to train the current workforce, um, but there are few and far between, unfortunately. I think, for example, um, the, the Laborers International Union has really reached out to the local, um, uh, to the current workforce and thought about how to move people in the trainings program, just for one example. There are other one examples as well. Um, but I do think it's inc critically important that there's a real investment from federal, from state, from local level in creating those workforce development programs that are going to um, create those opportunities and, um, and then have the policies that also sort of create the, the demand that we've talked about for people to move into those positions. Working okay. with companies. Exactly. Okay, so um, uh, how are we going to do this, Maureen? Are we going to open it up? Do we have a microphone? Okay, great. If you could raise your uh, hand if you have a question. And maybe introduce yourself. 
Hi, I'm Susan Reese from Wider Opportunities for Women. And um, for decades, we've been trying to um, open up opportunities for women, especially those who are not going to go to college, into these great career paths, great paying <laughs> union jobs in construction. It's, it's awful to see that the career path has declined so much recently. But, um, and we've recently uh, been working with training programs around the country on, for green jobs, and we've more than doubled the participation of women in these programs. Um, but I, I wondered especially if Mike had any examples of um, industry programs that have been successful in reaching out and showing women what opportunities might be there and then um, helping them raise their participation in the construction industry. Um, it, it looks like uh, also I'll just add that um, in 2011 about 9.2% of construction workers were female? Actually, the, the, I think that's for the construction industry, which includes the, the um, uh, secretaries and everything. But it's actually less than 3% of the skilled trades if you look at occupations. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in the second paragraph okay. after. All right, sorry. I mean, the, the, the straight answer is in, in our uh, interaction in the workforce arena, uh, I've seen little effective work done specifically on behalf of, of women. I mean, we're, we're a merit shop contractor, so um, I don't know what the union environment might, might be doing. But in our, in our partnerships, and we, we've actually uh, seen uh, a number of, of, of women come into our workforce program when we advertise and, and prove to be very good workers. Um, and I, I think the perception at one time was, well, it's heavy work, it's hard work. Uh, it's a bit of a backward industry. Uh, I've, I've seen some examples where women have a really tough go of it. I've seen other examples where men don't allow women to have to just, just be normal, you know, don't make a special deal for them and don't, don't uh, make it tough for them. Um, but we, we've had success and have a number of workers and we have a fairly diverse workforce. So um, it's not reasonable for us to expect that a you know, 120 pound woman is gonna be able to pack as much sheetrock as a, as, a, as a big guy would, but there's lots of skills. And, and some of it's about efficiency in the work. And so we're, we're perfectly open to that. But in terms of anything programmatically, uh, I've, I've seen little or no evidence of that in terms of the people that are trying to feed workers to us. And we're completely open to that. We're looking for programs where folks come with, uh, uh, like maybe from, from programs of Emily's, where they come with OSHA 10 hour or basic training, or maybe somebody picked up what we call an NCCR core curriculum, which is a 72 hour curriculum. That's great. That's like in the union term, that's pre-apprentice, somebody that would come to us with some, some uh, progress already made. And uh, so we're open to that, but I've just not seen any particular programs that have addressed that, not in our area. And I just wanted to add briefly, um, we have had a number, uh, we're a membership-based organization and our worker members, um, a number of women have come to us from the construction industry and um, I mean, it's a small number, I think, like you said, it's a two to three percent. Um, but our women workers come in with the same problems as men. They report work, workplace, um, not being paid on the job, uh, wage theft, uh, being injured, um, those sorts of things. And I think that, um, that uh, we've had a number of women go through our OSHA 10-hour training courses, and it's, we see it as a real opportunity to as we start to develop more access to these training programs, as we ho hopefully are able to open up more opportunities to specifically recruit women as sort of part of our mission of having gender equality in the workplace and moving women into um, jobs in the construction industry in particular because 
they, we've talked a lot about the challenges today, but compared to some of the other um, industries that women traditionally look, work in, they are more lowly paid, unfortunately. Um, you talked about home care, you talked about those sorts of things. And so I think that is a real priority and something that, that needs to be done and that we have sort of a long view on, this is where we need to be moving women into these jobs and providing them with the training and safety knowledge to be able to do that. Hi, I'm Bob Lerman at uh, Urban Institute. Um, there are two things. One, um, there's been a demise of the Office of Apprenticeship. And so in many states, there's maybe one or two people in the whole state that helps market apprenticeship. And apprenticeship isn't something that's really easy to create, uh, especially for small firms. They have to kind of be guided and see the benefits. When they do, they do. Uh, they do feel a great deal of satisfaction in it. But one thing that I'm um, having a hard time with in, in the discussion is the issue of productivity and information and quality of the work. One would think that if we're, the, the industry is hiring so many poorly qualified people, the reputation of the firms making the houses or repairing the houses would go down. Uh, is it an information problem where maybe the information is not so much on uh, certifying the workers, but certifying, maybe auditing the quality of the output that firms generate? Uh, and uh, presumably those firms that are doing a very good job, maybe they're thinking of some new ways of training workers. Uh, whatever they are doing uh, would be more quality-based on the output side. Uh, finally, uh, just to mention one case that I know of to try to enhance the reputation of construction work, the Alabama uh, contractors have put together a very interesting marketing effort to make construction more available. And I think this is another one of these problems where we're not starting with people at an early enough age sometimes. Uh, to recruit them when, when they're not expecting to get real high wages, but they're expecting to learn. Um, and we don't have good systems for that. Other countries do. I just wanted to respond briefly to your first comment um, about sort of the quality issue. Um, one of the groups that we've been able to build a working partnership with, particularly around um, policy objectives in Texas, um, is homeowners groups. Um, there's actually several um, homeowners groups who have formed in the residential industry because they have individually experienced problems with the quality of their homes. Um, purchasing new homes from certain large national home builders that are having cracked foundations and just terrible problems, basically making them unlivable. And so I do think that there is a, there, there is a um, impact for consumers in the end of this, and particularly in the residential industry. Um, and I, I think that there's more attention being given to that now, but that's sort of an opportunity to bring in those consumer issues. I'm talking so about the I'm not talking about the homeowners themselves I'm talking about people who purchase newly built like subdivision homes so you have the home builder that that went down the line and chose 
you know, who was going to be on those work sites. And so the home builders coming in, assuming they're buying a brand new product that should be impeccable, but that's not the case. So it's not individual, I'm not talking about individual home remodeling, I'm talking about large home builders Why and track building. Because it's Why? cheaper. <laughs> well, but if it's, if it's cheaper for the same quality, you know, one would argue with that. What you're saying is that it's, it's cheaper because the quality is lower, but no one has the information. Is that the problem? I mean, is, is it extremely obscure to find out what the quality is? Oh, I, I think it depends on if you're a one-time buyer. Um, then no, you don't know. You're trying to make a value decision. You might do a little bit of homework. Um, homework's pretty easy to do these days on the internet and with references and what have you, but um, a good impression's pretty easy to put out there as well. Uh, if you buy more than once, you might know, I've been down that road, I thought I'd save some money and I didn't. So repeat construction buyers, uh, they understand that. Uh, even the federal government has a, a, you know, a best value type proposition. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean most qualified. It's a minimum qualification. And so it's an indictment of, of the entire, when we say construction, that's owners, uh, designers, engineers, contractors, all, all those folks. And, and what you're, you're, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, what, what don't you get about if you, you get what you pay for? And, uh, and if you have low quality workers, but I think you gotta realize a lot of times the person that's being interviewed is a construction manager. We say he's a home builder. He builds nothing. His craftsman built something. A commercial general contractor, he builds nothing. His mason puts it together, the curtain wall guy, the electrician, that's who builds it. They're not in the interviews. So we've got um, BIM, which is building information modeling, that's 3D uh, type things. We've got uh, integrated building, we've got all these sort of high-tech things that people use to measure construction. But in another uh, blog post on construction, Citizen, a former executive AGC said, people don't care about that, they care about who's building it. That's where value in construction comes from, who puts it together. Have you ever done something at your house? It's nice to have that good builder, but it's really nice to watch that tile, that master tile setter, the guy that really is good at what he does. We don't talk to them. They just get hired. They're at the end of the food chain. And increasingly, as Emily says, further and further down that food chain is a sub to a sub to a sub. And ultimately, maybe that's not the master tile guy we get anymore. And, and I assure you, if it's what we see now, it's going to get worse because demand's going to go up. We turn, if we flip the switch today, solve this problem, we'd see incremental improvement. We got demographic problems in terms of those that are, the, the young men and women that were, that were birthing in this country, those that are leaving, this problem would, would manifest itself with great practices. But it's, it's, it's deadly with the practices that we have. I'll take your question and then yours. Thank you, Ariane Hegovich, Institute for Women's Policy Research. Um, I have two comments, questions. One is related specifically to um, training projects and pre-apprenticeship problems for women and in construction and the enforcement issue, because I think what we've learned from green jobs is there are some successful programs, but a lot of them don't have a higher rate of women in them, even though that was an explicitly stated um, goal for the Department of Labor and funders. And where it worked was where there were regular meetings, local coalitions or um, partnerships um, every three months kind of really looking at specific hours worked on the job and getting training and um, hiring to better standard for everybody, not, not just women. Um, and so I was just wondering if, given that some of this is about trying to set the policy environment and influence Capitol Hill and state governments, how far models like that can be 
build into anything around pushing for greater regulation and enforcement. My second point is if you could say more about what, what community college are doing wrong. Because what you see typically, it's for women, it's particularly hard to break into jobs where they're a small minority and training is on the job because unfortunately they are hostile men. So often it's easier to go to college, which is a little more neutral, and you have more women in, say, engineering jobs which require a degree than you have in, among electricians. So what are community colleges doing wrong? Why are they not, um, why are you saying they're kind of not quite meeting those skills and how can we push them to do more mixture of accreditation and on-the-job training or whatever you need to get good workers? Well, I can respond to the community college uh, more so. Um, I think some community colleges are doing, are doing a great job. Uh, I think that, that you have to understand that there are there's knowledge and then there's performance. And only a, a, a certain percentage of construction skills can be acquired in the classroom. You have to go on the job and do that. So anybody who thinks they're going to turn out a, a certified craftsman from a classroom environment is, is, is misled. That's not going to happen. It has to be a combination. And, um, and it's actually one of the reasons it's, it's a bit problematic. It's actually in the union model, you worked and then you went to school. And in theory, those two were matched. So when you went to class, you talked about what you did when you worked. Well, I was a union apprentice. It didn't exactly work that way. So let's not, you know, not all union apprenticeship programs are, are built the same way. I mean, there are good teachers, bad teachers, good, good apprenticeship training programs, bad apprenticeship training programs. So I think that when, when, I would tell you, I think the key is when the community college is connected with industry, when their faculty is advised. I, it's the same thing for a four-year institution. Uh, we're on the Construction Industry Advisory Council for Texas A&M, and they meet two times a year, and they make changes to their curriculum based on industry's advice. I think community college needs to do more of that, but, but there's no substitute for skills training on the job site. And so um, if, it's, if, if they're in one kind of job more than the other, and, and a lot of that may have to do with um, uh, home-type issues that, 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 that women you know, may have. That actually came up in the, in the presidential debate the other night. Uh, but you, you can only get so much from the classroom, and, and the rest has to come hands-on. And I think that's what makes it hard for people, because you can't just say, well, I show up, I'm certified, and, and only had a, had a classroom environment, because you haven't passed a test. Even NCCR has a knowledge-verified aspect, which, which you can be in the business, study the manual, and pass the test. Now, that may say something to your intellect, uh, but it may say nothing about your performance verification. That's a little bit harder. You, get a, you have to either watch that, observe that, or you have to set up a, a lab environment where you pass this performance test. So some of that's just uh, uh, the proof's in the pudding. It's, it's just unfortunate. Uh, question about women. Uh, you know, I maybe try to link this also to the question of productivity that also came up a little earlier. You know, in the 2000s, uh, the construction industry learned a very painful lesson. It saw in 2004, 2005, what looked like unstoppable growth. Uh, you know, more building than anyone could remember, uh, housing prices that are going through the roof. Now, in retrospect, we look back, we see that was all unsustainable. But what happened during that period is that it tolerated, the industry tolerated low productivity. It tolerated some of this low road practice. And so it didn't address uh, many of the issues that are coming. So it didn't, it tolerated low productivity. It didn't look to diversify its training offerings and bring more women and others and, and immigrants into the workforce. It allowed some of the low road uh, operators to continue to go. Said, we're not going to approach government and say we need stronger enforcement. All right, then what happens? The crash comes. Now you're hit right in the face with these looming problems. And, um, 
And it's very hard for the industry to react at a time when the work dries up and the panic sets in. So it, it learns a painful lesson in the 2000s. And I think if, if Mike's right, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's about to learn another painful lesson in the 2020s. As that demographic bubble bursts and you lose a lot of your highly skilled uh, trained workers, we've got another hard lesson to be learned. So yes, training programs. Yes, working uh, immigrants in. Yes, trying to shore up standards in the low wage part of the industry. All these are necessary. Otherwise, the pipeline problems, they're going to keep the industry healthy. Uh, they're only going to get magnified. And do you think, I mean? I think it's all part of the problem. It's, a, it's an industry that needs to change the way it thinks. And it needs to say, why have we allowed ourselves to tolerate low productivity, the exclusion of half the population by and large, uh, the continued exclusion, not just of women, but also of immigrant workers. It needs to change its thinking uh, to save itself. Mm -hmm. And I think what I, Irene was asking about was whether there needs to be, you know, even if you have a program that sets a goal of a certain number of women or people from the communities, how do you make sure that that's, those goals are met and, and that's done on a sustained basis? And I think that, you know, the most successful examples, again, come from Los Angeles and the work Lane has done around um, living wage requirements and community benefits agreements because they, part of their program is to constantly monitor and seek enforcement. And, you know, it's, it's a big lift and it's something that groups like Emily's have to do um, on the ground. It's something that state labor agencies hopefully in partnership with groups like Emily's need to do, but the sort of, you know, you don't want to break the back of employers with excessive reporting requirements, but the reality is there needs to be some mechanism for easy monitoring and enforcement when goals are not being met, because otherwise you have goals on paper, but in reality you don't change anything. It's like, just real quickly, it's just like any business, uh, you have an action plan and you have to have benchmark results. You don't just have activity, you have to accomplish something. Whether they're workforce programs or they're, or they're uh, government policy programs, you have to say, did you deliver? And you have to be able to evaluate. Every business has to do the same thing. I think we have time for one or maybe two more questions. So Hi, Catherine Singley from the National Council of La Raza. Uh, just last week, there were three Latino workers killed in a parking garage collapse that was under construction in Miami-Dade College. And we recently learned from the Department of Labor that Hispanic worker deaths on the job are on the rise again for the first time since 2006. And we've talked a little bit about health and safety today. And uh, my question to the folks on the panel is, in a time, as you said, Nick, of fiscal um, austerity and cuts to enforcement and squeezes on local governments, uh, resources for enforcement, how can policy incentivize partnerships with local groups to be the eyes and the ears to report um, hazardous conditions before tragedies like this uh, happen on the ground? So how can policy work with, with limited resources uh, to incentivize local partnerships and community organizations to report um, issues? Okay. Do you want to answer that first? Um. Um, I just want to talk about a couple of local examples um, that we've seen in Austin in particular. Um, in 2010, um, we worked with the city of Austin to um, train, and, and with the federal OSHA, um, that to actually train all of their sit construction site inspectors to identify safety hazards on work sites. So you have sort of an extra set of eyes on a construction work site, and then they don't—they're not burdened with the enforcement piece. They just know to call the local OSHA field office. So that OSHA pilot project um, that happened in 11 cities around the country, I think, is one example of being able to 
to um, heighten that awareness and, and commitment of local government um, to be involved in safety um, enforcement. Um, the other example is basic safety training can, can play a critical role in workers um, knowing how to protect themselves on the job. And we, um, in 2010, we were able to pass um, a requirement in Austin where basic 10-hour safety trainings are required on all sites um, with public money um, built on city property um, and all publicly funded sites. So that's something that since then has had, uh, we've also seen it, an impact that those requirements um, have actually greatly increased the number of workers from about 30% when we did a survey in 2009 to our most recent survey results. We'll be releasing a study in um, January 2013 on the Texas construction industry where we found that in Austin um, that about 50% of the workforce now has at least had that basic safety training. Safety training is just one piece of that, but at least it's a step in the right direction. So I think that that's something that those are two not uh, those are two very cost-effective strategies that have been able to um, sort of get the word out about safety to workers and also um, have an extra um, eyes and ears on work sites looking at those things. Yeah, I mean I think in in a lot of sectors, whether it's construction, domestic work, restaurants, car wash, we have worker centers and workers' rights organizations that have deep connections in, they're ready. They're more than ready. They don't need to be incentivized to do the collaboration. To me, it seems like we need to look at those states' departments of labor and say, all right, you need to change your orientation. Uh, a little bit of help, uh, funding directed toward those worker centers would go a long way, and I think you could have a much more effective uh, system uh, of enforcement that is um, sort of multi-partner reach into those sectors. Piece of this that relates to immigration reform and um, exercise of prosecutorial discretion to protect workers, immigrant workers who are actually blowing the whistle on unsafe work sites. And so there is that, that is a policy handle, and uh, it's a place that the administration actually has been taking some good steps. So. Just to add to it, Nick said, OSHA and, some, and OSHA and the Department of Labor um, have done that in some local areas, particularly yeah. the federal Department of Labor in Texas, since we don't have a state DOL. Um, but that's been something. Because <laughs> you don't need one. We have no workers. <laughs> <laughs> we have a Texas Workforce Commission, but they're a little bit different. Right. Um, so our, the, the, the OSHA and the Wage and Hour Division actually do come to our worker meetings and talk to workers, and we set up appointments with workers to talk to them directly. And so there, I think that there are some, have been some efforts around that. So. Well, I think we're at time, actually. I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to, I mean, I don't yeah. know. No, I, I just want to thank you all for coming. I think we, we are at time. I appreciate your engagement in this conversation. I hope you'll come uh, join us again for our, our next conversation. If you missed the other ones, they're on our website. I want to thank the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation and the Ford Foundation for sponsoring this event. And thank you all for coming. And especially thank our panelists, who I think are terrific today.